Part One, Chapter One of Sons and Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Sons and Lovers by D. H. Lawrence. Part One, Chapter One. THE EARLY MARRIED LIFE OF THE MORALS The Bottoms succeeded to Hell Row. Hell Row was a block of thatched, bulging cottages that stood by the brookside on Greenhill Lane. There lived the colliers who worked in the little gin-pits two fields away. The brook ran under the alder-trees, scarcely soiled by these small mines, whose coal was drawn to the surface by donkeys that plodded wearily in a circle round a gin and all over the countryside were these same pits, some of which had been worked in the time of Charles the Second, the few colliers and the donkeys burrowing down like ants into the earth, making queer mounds and little black places among the cornfields and the meadows. And the cottages of these coal-miners, in blocks and pairs here and there, together with odd farms and homes of the stockingers, straying over the parish, formed the village of Bestwood. Then, some sixty years ago, a sudden change took place. The gin-pits were elbowed aside by the large mines of the financiers. The coal and iron field of Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire was discovered. Carston Waiting Company appeared. Amid tremendous excitement, Lord Palmerston formally opened the company's first mine at Spinney Park, on the edge of Sherwood Forest. About this time the notorious Hell Row— which through growing old had acquired an evil reputation, was burned down, and much dirt was cleansed away. Carston Waite and Company found they had struck on a good thing, so, down the valleys of the brooks from Selby and Nuthall, new mines were sunk, until soon there were six pits working. From Nuthall, high up on the sandstone among the woods, the railway ran, past the ruined priory of the Carthusians, and past Robin Hood's well, down to Spinney Park, then on to Minton, a large mine among cornfields. From Minton, across the farmlands of the valley side to Bunker's Hill, branching off there and running north to Beggarly and Selby, that looks over at Critch and the hills of Derbyshire. Six mines like black studs on the countryside, linked by a loop of fine chain, the railway. To accommodate the regiments of miners, Carston Waiting Company built the squares, great quadrangles of dwellings on the hillside of Bestwood, and then, in the Brook Valley, on the side of Hell Row, they erected the bottoms. The bottoms consisted of six blocks of miners' dwellings, two rows of three, like the dots on a blank six domino, and twelve houses in a block. This double row of dwellings sat at the foot of the rather sharp slope from Bestwood, and looked out, from the attic windows at least, on the slow climb of the valley towards Selby. The houses themselves were substantial and very decent. One could walk all round, seeing little front gardens with auriculas and saxifrage in the shadow of the bottom block, sweet williams and pinks in the sunny top block, seeing neat front windows, little porches, little privet hedges, and dormer windows for the attics. But that was outside. That was the view on to the uninhabited parlours of all the colliers' wives. 
The dwelling-room, the kitchen, was at the back of the house, facing inward between the blocks, looking at a scrubby back garden, and then at the ash-pits. And between the rows, between the long lines of ash-pits, went the alley, where the children played and the women gossiped and the men smoked. So the actual conditions of living in the bottoms, that was so well built and that looked so nice, were quite unsavoury because people must live in the kitchen, and the kitchens open on to that nasty alley of ash-pits. Mrs. Morrill was not anxious to move into the bottoms, which was already twelve years old and on the downward path, when she descended to it from Brestwood. But it was the best she could do. Moreover, she had an end-house in one of the top blocks, and thus had only one neighbour. On the other side, an extra strip of garden. And, having an end-house, she enjoyed a kind of aristocracy among the other women of the between-houses, because her rent was five shillings and sixpence, instead of five shillings a week. But this superiority in station was not much consolation to Mrs. Morrill. She was thirty-one years old, and had been married eight years. A rather small woman, of delicate mould but resolute bearing, she shrank a little from the first contact with the bottom's women. She came down in the July, and in the September expected her third baby. Her husband was a minor. They had only been in their new home three weeks when the wakes, or fair, began. Morrill, she knew, was sure to make a holiday of it. He went off early on the Monday morning, the day of the fair. The two children were highly excited. William, a boy of seven, fled off immediately after breakfast to prowl round the wakes ground, leaving Annie, who was only five, to whine all morning to go also. Mrs. Morrill did her work. She scarcely knew her neighbours yet, and knew no one with whom to trust the little girl. So she promised to take her to the wakes after dinner. William appeared at half-past twelve. He was a very active lad, fair-haired, freckled, with a touch of the Dane or Norwegian about him. "'Can I have my dinner, mother?' he cried, rushing in with his cap on. "'Cause it begins at half-past one, the men says so.' "'You can have your dinner as soon as it's done,' replied the mother. "'Isn't it done?' he cried, his blue eyes staring at her in indignation. "'Then I'm going be out it.' "'You'll do nothing of the sort. It will be done in five minutes. It is only half-past twelve. "'They'll be beginning,' the boy half-cried, half-shouted. "'You won't die if they do,' said the mother. "'Besides, it's only half-past twelve, and you've a full hour.' The lad began hastily to lay the table, and directly the three sat down. They were eating batter pudding and jam, when the boy jumped off his chair and stood perfectly still. Some distance away could be heard the first small braying of a merry-go-round, and the tooting of a horn. His face quivered as he looked at his mother. "'I told you!' he said, running through the dresser for his cap. "'Take your pudding in your hand, and it's only five past one, so you were wrong. You haven't got your tuppence,' cried the mother in a breath. The boy came back, bitterly disappointed for his tuppence, then went off without a word. "'I want to go, I want to go,' said Annie, beginning to cry. "'Well, and you shall go, whining, whizzing little stick,' said the mother. 
and later in the afternoon she trudged up the hill under the tall hedge with her child. The hay was gathered from the fields, and cattle were turned on to the eddish. It was warm, peaceful. Mrs. Morrill did not like the wakes. There were two sets of horses, one going by steam, one pulled round by a pony. Three organs were grinding, and there came odd cracks of pistol-shots, fearful screeching of the coconut man's rattle, shouts of the Aunt Sally man, screeches from the peep-show lady. The mother perceived her son gazing enraptured outside the Lion Wallace booth, at the pictures of this famous lion that had killed a negro and maimed for life two white men. She left him alone, and went to get Annie a spin of toffee. Presently the lad stood in front of her, wildly excited. "'You never said you was coming. Isn't there a lot of things? That lion's killed three men. I've spent my tuppence, and look here!' He pulled from his pocket two egg-cups, with pink moss-roses on them. "'I got these from that stall where you have to get the marbles in them holes, and I got these two in two goes. Hey, Penny, a go. They got moss-roses on. Look here. I wanted these.' She knew he wanted them for her. "'Hm,' she said, pleased. "'They are pretty.' "'Shall you carry em? Cause I'm frightened of breaking em. He was tip-full of excitement now she had come, led her about the ground, showed her everything. Then, at the peep-show, she explained the pictures, in a sort of story, to which he listened as if spellbound. He would not leave her. All the time he stuck close to her, bristling with a small boy's pride of her. For no other woman looked like such a lady as she did, in her little black bonnet and her cloak. She smiled when she saw women she knew. When she was tired, she said to her son, "'Well, are you coming now or later?' "'Are you going already?' he cried, his face full of reproach. "'Already. It is past four, I know.' "'What are you going already for?' he lamented. "'You needn't come if you don't want,' she said. And she went slowly away with her little girl, whilst her son stood watching her, cut to the heart to let her go, and yet unable to leave the wakes. As she crossed the open ground in front of the moon and stars, she heard men shouting, and smelled the beer, and hurried a little, thinking her husband was probably in the bar. At about half-past six her son came home, tired now, rather pale, and somewhat wretched. He was miserable, though he did not know it, because he had let her go alone. Since she had gone he had not enjoyed his wakes. "'Has my dad been?' he asked. "'No,' said the mother. "'He's helping to wait at the moon and stars. I seed him through that black tin stuff with holes in it, on the window, with his sleeves rolled up.' "'Ha!' exclaimed the mother shortly. "'He's got no money, and he'll be satisfied if he gets his allowance, whether they give him more or not.' When the light was fading, and Mrs. Morrill could see no more to sew, she rose and went to the door. Everywhere was the sound of excitement, the restlessness of the holiday, that at last infected her. She went out into the side garden. Women were coming home from the wakes, the children hugging a white lamb with green legs, or a wooden horse. Occasionally a man lurched past, almost as full as he could carry. Sometimes a good husband came along with his family, peacefully. 
but usually the women and children were alone. The stay-at-home mothers stood gossiping at the corners of the alley, as the twilight sank, folding their arms under their white aprons. Mrs. Morrill was alone, but she was used to it. Her son and her little girl slept upstairs, so, it seemed, her home was there behind her, fixed and stable. But she felt wretched with the coming child. The world seemed a dreary place, where nothing else would happen for her, at least until William grew up. But for herself, nothing but this dreary endurance, till the children grew up. And the children! She could not afford to have this third. She did not want it. The father was serving beer in a public-house, swilling himself drunk. She despised him, and was tied to him. This coming child was too much for her. If it was not for William and Annie, she was sick of it, the struggle with poverty and ugliness and meanness. She went into the front garden, feeling too heavy to take herself out, yet unable to stay indoors. The heat suffocated her and looking ahead, the prospect of her life made her feel as if she were buried alive. The front garden was a small square with a privet hedge. There she stood, trying to soothe herself with the scent of flowers and the fading, beautiful evening. Opposite her small gate was the stile that led uphill, under the tall hedge between the burning glow of the cut pastures. The sky overhead throbbed and pulsed with light. The glow sank quickly off the field, the earth and the hedges smoked dusk. As it grew dark, a ruddy glare came out on the hilltop, and out of the glare the diminished commotion of the fair. Sometimes, down the trough of darkness formed by the path under the hedges, men came lurching home. One young man lapsed into a run down the steep bit that ended the hill, and went with a crash into the stile. Mrs. Morrill shuddered. He picked himself up, swearing viciously, rather pathetically, as if he thought the style had wanted to hurt him. She went indoors, wondering if things were ever going to alter. She was beginning by now to realize that they would not. She seemed so far away from her girlhood, she wondered if it were the same person walking heavily up the back garden at the bottoms, as had run so lightly up the breakwater at Sheerness ten years before. "'What have I to do with it?' she said to herself. "'What have I to do with all this? Even the child I'm going to have. It doesn't seem as if I were taken into account.' Sometimes life takes hold of one, carries the body along, accomplishes one's history, and yet is not real, but leaves oneself, as it were, slurred over. "'I wait,' Mrs. Morrill said to herself, I wait, and what I wait for can never come. Then she straightened the kitchen, lit the lamp, mended the fire, looked out the washing for the next day, and put it to soak. After which she sat down to her sewing. Through the long hours her needle flashed regularly through the stuff. Occasionally she sighed, moving to relieve herself, and all the time she was thinking how to make the most of what she had for the children's sakes. At half-past eleven her husband came. His cheeks were very red, and very shiny above his black moustache. His head nodded slightly. He was pleased with himself. "'Oh, oh, waitin' for me, lass,' 
I've been helping Anthony, and what's think he give me? Not but a lousy half-crown, and that's every penny. He thinks you've made the rest up in beer, she said shortly. And I have it, that I have it. You believe me, I've had very little this day. I haven't all. His voice went tender. Here, and I brought thee a bit of brandy-snap and a coconut for the children. He laid the gingerbread and the coconut, a hairy object, on the table. Nay, I never said thank you for naught in thy life, did there? As a compromise, she picked up the coconut and shook it to see if it had any milk. It's a good un. You may back your life for that. I got it for Bill Hodgkinson. Bill, I says, thou no wants them three nuts, duster, are in it to forgive me one for my bit of a lad and wench. I am Walter, my lad. He says, take which on em's to a mind, and so I took one and thanked him. I didn't like to shake it afore his eyes, but he says, that better make sure it's a good un, Walt. And so you see, I knowed it was. He's a fine chap. Is Bill Hodgkinson? He's a nice chap. A man will part with anything so long as he's drunk, and you're drunk along with him," said Mrs. Morel. "Eh, that mucky little hussy who's drunk? I should like to know," said Morel. He was extraordinarily pleased with himself because of his day's helping to wait in the moon and stars. He chattered on. Mrs. Morel, very tired and sick of his babble, went to bed as quickly as possible while he raked the fire. Mrs. Morel came of a good old burgher family, famous independents who had fought with Colonel Hutchinson, and who remained stout Congregationalists. Her grandfather had gone bankrupt in the lace market at a time when so many lace manufacturers were ruined in Nottingham. Her father, George Coppard, was an engineer, a large, handsome, haughty man. Proud of his fair skin and blue eyes, but more proud still of his integrity, Gertrude resembled her mother in her small build, but her temper, proud and unyielding, she had from the Coppards. George Coppard was bitterly galled by his own poverty. He became foreman of the engineers in the dockyard at Sheerness. Mrs. Morel, Gertrude, was the second daughter. She favored her mother, loved her mother best of all. But she had the Coppards' clear, defiant blue eyes and their broad brow. She remembered to have hated her father's overbearing manner towards her gentle, humorous, kindly-souled mother. She remembered running over the breakwater at Sheerness and finding the boat. She remembered to have been petted and flattered by all the men when she had gone to the dockyard, for she was a delicate, rather proud child. She remembered the funny old mistress, whose assistant she had become. Whom she had loved to help in the private school, and she still had the Bible that John Field had given her. She used to walk home from chapel with John Field when she was nineteen. He was the son of a well-to-do tradesman, had been to college in London, and was to devote himself to business. She could always recall in detail a September Sunday afternoon when they had sat under the vine at the back of her father's house. The sun came through the chinks of the vine leaves and made beautiful patterns, like a lace scarf, falling on her and on him. Some of the leaves were clean yellow, like yellow flat flowers. Now sit still," 
he had cried. "'How your hair! I don't know what it is like. It's as bright as copper and gold, as red as burnt copper, and it is gold threads where the sun shines on it. Fancy their saying it's brown. Your mother calls it mouse-colour.' She had met his brilliant eyes, but her clear face scarcely showed the elation which rose within her. "'But you say you don't like business,' she pursued. "'I don't! I hate it!' he cried hotly. "'And you would like to go into the ministry?' she half implored. "'I should! I should love it if I thought I could make a first-rate preacher!' "'Then why don't you? Why don't you?' her voice rang with defiance. "'If I were a man, nothing would stop me!' She held her head erect. He was rather timid before her. "'But my father's so stiff-necked. He means to put me into the business, and I know he'll do it.' "'But if you're a man?' she had cried. "'Being a man isn't everything,' he replied, frowning with puzzled helplessness. Now, as she moved about her work at the bottoms, with some experience of what being a man meant, she knew that it was not everything. At twenty, owing to her health, she had left Sheerness. Her father had retired home to Nottingham. John Fields's father had been ruined. The son had gone as a teacher in Norwood. She did not hear of him until, two years later, she made determined inquiry. He had married his landlady, a woman of forty, a widow with property. And still Mrs. Morrell preserved John Fields's Bible. She did not now believe him to be, well, she understood pretty well what he might or might not have been. So she preserved his Bible, and kept his memory intact in her heart, for her own sake. To her dying day, for thirty-five years, she did not speak of him. When she was twenty-three years old, she met, at a Christmas party, a young man from the Arawash Valley. Morrell was then twenty-seven years old. He was well set up, erect, and very smart. He had wavy black hair that shone again, and a vigorous black beard that had never been shaved. His cheeks were ruddy, and his red moist mouth was noticeable because he laughed so often and so heartily. He had that rare thing, a rich, ringing laugh. Gertrude Coppard had watched him, fascinated. He was so full of colour and animation, his voice ran so easily into comic grotesque, he was so ready and so pleasant with everybody. Her own father had a rich fund of humour, but it was satiric. This man's was different, soft, non-intellectual, warm, a kind of gambling. She herself was opposite. She had a curious, receptive mind which found much pleasure and amusement in listening to other folk. She was clever in leading folk to talk. She loved ideas, and was considered very intellectual. What she liked most of all was an argument on religion, or philosophy, or politics, with some educated man. This she did not often enjoy. So she always had people tell her about themselves, finding her pleasure so. In her person she was rather small and delicate, with a large brow, and dropping bunches of brown silk curls. Her blue eyes were very straight, honest, and searching. She had the beautiful hands of the coppards. Her dress was always subdued. She wore dark blue silk, with a peculiar silver chain of silver scallops. This, and a heavy brooch of twisted gold, 
was her only ornament. She was still perfectly intact, deeply religious, and full of beautiful candour. Walter Morrell seemed melted away before her. She was to the minor that thing of mystery and fascination, a lady. When she spoke to him, it was with a southern pronunciation and a purity of English which thrilled him to hear. She watched him. He danced well, as if it were natural and joyous in him to dance. His grandfather was a French refugee who had married an English barmaid, if it had been a marriage. Gertrude Coppard watched the young miner as he danced, a certain subtle exultation like glamour in his movement, and his face the flower of his body, ruddy, with tumbled black hair, and laughing alike whatever partner he bowed above. She thought him rather wonderful, never having met anyone like him. Her father was to her the type of all men, and George Coppard, proud in his bearing, handsome, and rather bitter, who preferred theology in reading, and who drew near in sympathy only to one man, the Apostle Paul, who was harsh in government and in familiarity ironic, who ignored all sensuous pleasure. He was very different from the minor. Gertrude herself was rather contemptuous of dancing. She had not the slightest inclination towards that accomplishment, had it never learned even a Roger de Coverley. She was Puritan, like her father, high-minded and really stern. Therefore the dusky, golden softness of this man's sensuous flame of life, that flowed off his flesh like the flame from a candle, not baffled and gripped into incandescence by thought and spirit as her life was, seemed to her something wonderful, beyond her. He came and bowed above her. A warmth radiated through her, as if she had drunk wine. "'Now do come and have this one with me,' he said caressively. "'It's easy, you know. I'm pining to see you dance.' She had told him before she could not dance. She glanced at his humility and smiled. Her smile was very beautiful. It moved the man so that he forgot everything. "'No, I won't dance,' she said softly. Her words came clean and ringing. Not knowing what he was doing, he often did the right thing by instinct, he sat beside her, inclining reverentially. "'But you mustn't miss your dance,' she reproved. "'Nay, I don't want to dance that. It's not one as I care about.' "'Yet you invited me to it.' He laughed very heartily at this. "'I never thought of that.' Thou'rt not long in taking the curl out of me. It was her turn to laugh quickly. You don't look as if you'd come much uncurled, she said. I'm like a pig's tail. I curl because I cannot help it, he laughed rather boisterously. And you are a miner, she exclaimed in surprise. Yes, I went down when I was ten. She looked at him in wondering dismay. When you were ten... "'And wasn't it very hard?' she asked. "'You soon get used to it. You live like the mice, and you pop out at night to see what's going on.' "'It makes me feel blind,' she frowned. "'Like a motorwarp,' he laughed. "'Yay, yay, and there's some chaps as just go round like motorwarps.' He thrust his face forward in the blind, snout-like way of a mole, seeming to sniff and peer for direction." "'They done, though,' he protested naively. 
They never seed such a way they get in. But the mon let me take thee down some time, and that can see for thyself. She looked at him startled. This was a new tract of life suddenly opened before her. She realized the life of the miners, hundreds of them toiling below earth and coming up at evening. He seemed to her noble. He risked his life daily, and with gaiety. She looked at him, with a touch of appeal in her pure humility. "'Shouldn't her like it?' he asked tenderly. "'Appen not it had dirty thee.' She'd never been thee'd and thou'd before. The next Christmas they were married, and for three months she was perfectly happy. For six months she was very happy. He had signed the pledge, and wore the blue ribbon of a teetotaler. He was nothing if not showy. They lived, she thought, in his own house. It was small but convenient enough, and quite nicely furnished, with solid, worthy stuff that suited her honest soul. The women, her neighbours, were rather foreign to her, and Morel's mother and sisters were apt to sneer at her ladylike ways, but she could perfectly well live by herself, as long as she had her husband close. Sometimes, when she herself wearied of love-talk, she tried to open her heart seriously to him. She saw him listen deferentially, but without understanding. This killed her efforts at a finer intimacy, and she had flashes of fear. Sometimes he was restless of an evening. It was not enough for him just to be near her, she realized. She was glad when he set himself to little jobs. He was a remarkably handy man, could make or mend anything. So she would say, "'I do like that coal-rake of your mother's. It is small and natty.' "'Dust her, my wench! Well, I made that, so I can make thee one.' "'What? Why, it's a steel one.' "'And what if it is? Thou shalt have one very similar, if not exactly same.' She did not mind the mess, nor the hammering and noise. He was busy and happy. But in the seventh month, when she was brushing his Sunday coat, she felt papers in the breast-pocket, and, seized with a sudden curiosity, took them out to read. He very rarely wore the frock-coat he was married in, and it had not occurred to her before to feel curious concerning the papers. They were the bills of the household furniture, still unpaid. "'Look here,' she said at night, after he was washed and had had his dinner. "'I found these in the pocket of your wedding-coat. Haven't you settled the bills yet?' "'No, I haven't had a chance.' "'But you told me all was paid. I had better go into Nottingham on Saturday and settle them. I don't like sitting on another man's chairs and eating from an unpaid table.' He did not answer. "'I can have your bank-book, can't I?' "'Thou can have it, for what good it'll be to thee.' "'I thought,' she began. He had told her he had a good bit of money left over, but she realized it was no use asking questions. She sat rigid with bitterness and indignation. The next day she went down to see his mother. "'Didn't you buy the furniture for Walter?' she asked. "'Yes, I did.' tartly retorted the elder woman. "'And how much did he give you to pay for it?' The elder woman was stung with fine indignation. Eighty pound, if you're so keen on knowing,' she replied. Eighty pounds! But there are forty-two pounds still owing.' 
I can't help that. And where has it all gone? You'll find all the papers, I think, if you look. Beside ten pound is he owed me, and six pound is the wedding cost down here. Six pounds, echoed Gertrude Morrell. It seemed to her monstrous that, after her own father had paid so heavily for her wedding, six pounds more should have been squandered in eating and drinking at Walter's parents' house, at his expense. "'And how much has he sunk in his houses?' she asked. "'His houses? Which houses?' Gertrude Morrell went white to the lips. He had told her the house he lived in, and the next one, was his own. "'I thought the house we live in,' she began. "'They're my houses, those two, said the mother-in-law. "'And not clear, either. It's as much as I can do to keep the mortgage interest paid.' Gertrude sat white and silent. She was her father now. "'Then we ought to be paying you rent,' she said coldly. "'Walter is paying me rent,' replied the mother. "'And what rent?' asked Gertrude. Six and six a week,' retorted the mother. It was more than the house was worth. Gertrude held her head erect, looked straight before her. "'It is lucky to be you,' said the elder woman, bitingly, "'to have a husband as takes all the worry of the money and leaves you a free hand.' The young wife was silent. She said very little to her husband, but her manner had changed towards him. Something in her proud, honourable soul had crystallised out, hard as rock. When October came in, she thought only of Christmas. Two years ago, at Christmas, she had met him. Last Christmas she had married him. This Christmas she would bear him a child. "'You don't dance yourself, do you, missus?' asked her nearest neighbour, in October, when there was great talk of opening a dancing class over the brick and tile inn at Bestwood. "'No, I never had the least inclination to,' Mrs. Morrell replied. "'Fancy! And how funny as you should have married your mester! You know he's quite a famous one for dancing.' "'I didn't know he was famous,' laughed Mrs. Morrell. "'Yea, he is, though. Why, he ran that dancing class in the Miners' Arms Club Room for over five years.' "'Did he?' "'Yes, he did.' The other woman was defiant. "'And it was thronged every Tuesday, and Thursday, and Saturday, and there was carryings on, according to all accounts.' This kind of thing was gall and bitterness to Mrs. Morrell, and she had a fair share of it. The women did not spare her, at first, for she was superior, though she could not help it. He began to be rather late in coming home. "'They're working very late now, aren't they?' she said to her washerwoman. "'No later than they allers do, I don't think. But they stop to have their pint at Ellen's, and then they get talkin', and there you are. Dinner stone cold, and it serves em right.' "'But Mr. Morrell does not take any drink.' The woman dropped the clothes, looked at Mrs. Morrell, then went on with her work, saying nothing. End of Part 1 of Chapter 1